Travel with me to a dark and isolated farm located deep in the heart of St. Mary's County, Maryland, where the only African-American farmer and his family are being tormented by some thing stalking around their property. Can they survive? Can they protect the farm that is their very livelihood? And can they do it with their sanity intact? Are you in the mood for dark, isolated, rural horror? Are books full of ghastly green goo and reanimated corpses your jam? Then check out Mulch, the eerie inaugural novella from Maniacal Books, available today on Amazon Kindle and mcsbooks.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDormand, and this is ATOS, your Welsh mythology speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we're going to be talking about The Book of Three by Lloyd Alexander. This was published in 1964, and it's the first volume in the beloved, I mean, the beloved Chronicles of Prydain. And even though this is episode 30 or so, this is really the first book that we're covering that I'm nervous about. It's the first book that feels like a big deal, not just in terms of the historical development of speculative fiction, but in terms of people's childhoods and maybe even their identities. Certainly, the Chronicles of Prydain were a big deal for me as a kid and even into my adolescence, and not just the Chronicles of Prydain, but Alexander's Westmark series too. As we'll talk about in the Themes and Motifs segment, these were foundational for my thinking about moral and ethical dilemmas, about our obligations to one another, and about how to treat people. I learned a lot about the type of person I want to be from these books, and I know I'm not the only one. As I'm recording this, my wife and I are expecting our first child, I mean, in like a week, literally, and I've already begun constructing a library of important books for him. We've also been reading him The Hobbit already, Harry Potter too. And the library has two fantasy series that were really important to me as a child. This one, of course, and also the Dark is Rising series by Susan Cooper. And as you can imagine, it was just not possible for me to hold these books in my hand and not read at least one of them right now. And what tipped us to Lloyd Alexander is that by total coincidence, Brandon, my co-host on Elder Sign and the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, had just read The Book of Three for a totally random reason. And I thought it would be fun to talk it over with him as well. And I haven't actually gotten to do that yet, but maybe I'll, uh, I'll bring our recorder with me the next time we grab a coffee and, uh, I don't know, release that conversation as a bonus episode of some sort. So all of that said, I'm excited for this book, but also nervous. And I'm sure you can hear that in my voice and, and just by the rambling nature of this intro. I'm nervous to actually get into it. I'm nervous to say, let's do it. But do it, we should. Get into it, we should. So let's take a deep breath. Let's calm our nerves and let's go to Pradane. Okay, so the first thing we should say is that this is a high fantasy book. It takes place entirely in a secondary world that is not our own. This world is called Pradane, which is to say Britain. Pradane is the, the Welsh for Britain, or really, Britain is the Latinization of the Celtic word Pradane. And that's going to matter, because the fantasy world of Pradane is based on medieval Welsh mythology. We'll have more on that in the next segment, as you can imagine. Being medieval in nature, we are dealing with kings and castles. But because it's mythological, we've also got magic and monsters. Because it's Wales, it's mountains and forests, it's valleys and rivers— and Alexander pays a great deal of attention to the natural landscape and to the, the flora and the fauna. Uh, this is something that really stands out in this book and, and makes the world come alive. 
But it isn't really Wales. It is a fantasy world, and it has its own lore and has its own history. Like Wales, Prydain is a small place. It might really only be about the same size as the, the Shire. In days long ago, it was ruled by a wicked sorceress named Akron. But the sons of Don came from over the sea and established a new kingdom centered around their castle, Cerdathel. There is a high king, one of the sons of Don, who rules as a suzerain over a number of subject kings, some of whom we'll meet along the way, and has a powerful lieutenant known as a war leader. And we're going to meet him too. The sons of Don and the high king are great, but there is an antagonist who rules the far west and has designs over the west of Pradane. And this is Aron, who rules Anuvin. He is an evil overlord, very similar to Sauron. He wants to conquer and enslave and rule. But at the start of the book, he lacks the power to do that. He lacks the power to do anything, really. And keeping it this way is what the High King is for. But, of course, naturally, right, that is going to be the inciting incident that gets this book going, and really the whole series going. Aron's power has grown, and he has recruited a new war leader of his own, a mysterious figure known as the Horned King. And he's called this because he wears a skull helmet with huge antlers sticking out of it. And this, this is an image that terrified me as a kid. And he never speaks. He's just this scary, silent killer who rides through the forest with his army. Uh, it's an army of zombies, by the way. And it is, it is great. This is a really wonderful element of this story. Okay, so that's the setup. Uh, let's go meet our protagonist and, and, and get the plot going. This is a Bildens roman. Uh, we're going to follow the adventures of a young person, in, in this case, a young man, as he grows up and has adventures and finds a place for himself in the world. That young man is Tarin, an assistant pig keeper. And by the way, I want to apologize for my pronunciation of his name. Americans tend to pronounce T-A-R as tear, even though that is horribly wrong. But it feels extremely unnatural to me to pronounce this the correct way. I have to actively stop and, and make myself do it. So I am probably going to mess it up a few times as I, I get into the flow here. And if you've seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer, then you have seen this go the opposite way when Giles simply cannot say Tara. It, it has to be Tara, even though that's not her name. He just cannot do it. All right. So Tarin is an assistant pig keeper at Ker Dalbin, which is the castle. Uh, manor might actually be a better word for it. It's uh, the manor of the wizard and, and scholar Dalbin. This is where the Book of Three exists, and, and this is a, a magical book that shocks people who shouldn't be reading it, though it's not really going to come into the plot at all, despite supplying the title of the book. What is going to come into the plot is the pig whom Tarin keeps, uh, assistantly at least. Uh, this is Henwen, and she's a very special pig because she is able to tell the future. She's an oracular pig, uh, a phrase I never thought I would use in my life, but it's marvelous. And this matters right now because of the growing power of Aron and the Horned King, all of which makes the future uncertain. Moreover, as we'll eventually learn, Henwen knows something that will allow the good guys to defeat the Horned King, and, and so the story gets going, and, and really just within like a few pages, uh, the story gets going when the Horned King shows up at Cairdalbin, and Henwen runs away. It's Taran's job, of course, to watch over her, and so he gives chase, and, and this takes him far into the forest, where he encounters the Horned King, who's also looking for the pig. Tarin escapes, but he is wounded in this encounter, and he passes out in the forest. But he awakes to discover that his wound has been treated by Gwydion, who is the war leader of the High King. He's one of the sons of Don. Gwydion is also looking for Henwen, because he needs to know how to deal with this growing evil, and so together they set off on the trail. 
But they're not alone. They are aided by a wilderness creature named Gurgi. Gurgi has some animal qualities, but he is sentient. He can speak. He's really something of a reverse golem, we might say. And Gurgi is a great character, and he speaks almost exclusively in rhymed pairs of active participles. He says crunchings and munchings to mean food, for example. Now, they don't find the pig, but they do learn that the Horned King has a massive army of undead warriors. Uh, they're called cauldronborn because that's how they're, they're made. And that the Horned King intends to attack the castle of the High King and take control of Pradane. Some of these cauldronborn, they, they, they capture Tarin and Gwydion. Uh, Gurgi gets away, and they bring Tarin and Gwydion to the spiral castle of the evil sources Akron, who, who used to rule Pradane, but now just hangs out in this spiral castle. And our two heroes are, are separated, and now we just follow Tarin into the dungeon, where his life is going to change, uh, change very much, as we meet another member of our ensemble cast here. This is Ailanwi, a young woman about Tarin's age, who happens to be distantly related to Akron and is her, her pupil in sorcery. But even though she is the student of an evil sorceress, she doesn't really like that evil sorceress very much, and so she wants to help Tarin escape because, really because it will annoy Akron. And this sort of rescue, this escape, this does not really pose a problem for Al Anwi, who loves to explore and is insatiably curious, and so has mastered the, the labyrinth of tunnels beneath Spiral Castle. In fact, when we meet her, she's supposed to be locked up someplace else as, as a punishment for something else that she did, but she has no trouble slipping in and out of that locked room. And so she helps Taran get out of the dungeon, and also agrees to help get Gwydion out too, though that is going to be a separate adventure. Along the way, they find the barrow of the king who ruled Pradane long, long ago, long before the Sons of Dawn, and even long before Akron was here, and they get his sword. The sword can't be drawn from its scabbard, except by the rightful king. It's basically Excalibur. And while this doesn't fully come back in the Book of Three, you can bet that it will before the series is over. When they take the sword, Spiral Castle collapses around them, and they have to hurry to get out. Outside, where they're supposed to meet Gwydion, Taran discovers that the person Ailanwi rescued isn't Gwydion at all, and that Gwydion has therefore died in the collapse of the castle. He's upset. He, he takes it out on Ailanwi, but Ailanwi gives it right back. She's a, a phenomenal character, by the way, and we're going to talk more about her in the next segment. But the person who has been rescued is named Fluterflam, and he is a terrible bard who used to be a terrible king, and he's ready to help with the mission, which, now that Gwydion is dead, is no longer to find Henwen, but is to, to get to the High King and warn him about the evil that has returned. Along the way, they have a series of adventures, and they visit some more of this fantastical world, and are also reunited with Gurgi, who is heroically injured in a battle with some of the, the cauldron-born. They end up in the peaceful valley of Medwin, and Medwin is essentially Bayorn here. We'll talk about that a bit in the next segment as well. Medwin heals Gurgi and sends them back on their way, and next up, then, is an accidental entrance into the Land of Fairy. And this is something that, uh, well, it's, it's actually my least favorite part of the book, but nonetheless, it is interesting for diverging from some of the, the customs of modern fantasy by showing us Celtic little people who are more like dwarves than like fantasy elves. And this encounter turns out to be totally serendipitous, because Henwen, the oracular pig, is also here, and so our heroes are able to take her with them. But soon after, they are set upon by Cauldronborn, and they lose the pig again, and in the end, they come face to face with the Horned One again. And this time, he's going to kill Taran and Ailanwi and Gurgi and Fluterflam. 
There's a great moment here where Taran goes to draw the magic sword they got in the barrow, and we expect that in this moment, that is clearly the climax of the story, he's going to be able to do this because he's an orphan, we know this already, and maybe it's going to turn out that he's actually the rightful king after all, he's the rightful high king. But that's not at all what happens. In fact, trying to draw the sword wounds him, and this is a great defiance of our expectations. And Taran's last image before he passes out from the, the pain here is of the Horned King's face melting and his army falling apart. But Taran doesn't understand what has happened. When he wakes up, it is days later and he's totally safe. It turns out that Gwydion didn't actually die in the collapse of Spiral Castle at all because he wasn't there. Instead, he'd been taken to another castle to be tortured. And since he survived his torment, he has come to understand the hearts of all creatures and that includes Hen Wen, who, it turns out, had run to him and told him how to defeat the Horned King. All Gwydion needed was the Horned King's true name, and, and having this gave him power over him. And when he said it out loud, destruction. And that's the end of the plot, though we do get a coda with Taran back home in Kaer Dalbin, back at his old job of assistant pigkeeper, and Aladwi is there. And even though it turns out that she's a princess, she is going to stay with them for a while, which makes Taran very happy. And... That's it. That is the end of the book. But even though it's the end of the book, it is really just the beginning for us because there is a lot going on here. There is a lot to talk about in our Themes and Motifs segment. At its core, this is a book about heroism, and that's where I want to start. Alexander, of course, right, he is riffing on heroic literature. He's adapting the deeds of mythical Welsh kings and warriors into a, a children's fantasy novel, and we'll look at some specific examples of that later on. But Alexander is doing much more than simply retelling those deeds, and by extension then, implicitly adopting the virtues of those long-ago anonymous poets who wrote those stories to begin with. Instead, what Alexander has done is, is craft a delightful story that deconstructs the very nature of heroism. It's a story that forces us to ask what it means to be a hero and whether we'd really like to do any of the things that heroes do in medieval poetry. In fact, the, the central thesis of the book is, and if you'll let me quote Yoda here, the, the central thesis of the book is, wars not make one great. Let's take a look at what he does. At the start of the book, Taran yearns to be something more than what he is. He's restless. He's tired of being a farmhand. He's tired of doing the same thing day after day. He says, it will be vegetables and horseshoes all my life. And I think we've all felt that way at some point during our adolescence. I mean, I mean there's a reason I wound up in the army, right? But Dalbin, who is older and wiser and, you know, a wizard, Dalbin knows that being a hero isn't all flashing swords and galloping about on horses. It's not glorious. Of course, Tara knows about heroes only through songs and poems, through fantasy novels, we might say. And Alexander is conscious of the fact that he's writing such a book, even as he is deconstructing the very notion of heroism. And so he places a writer in his story in the form of the bard, Fluter Flam. He's not a good bard. In fact, he's quite terrible and technically isn't actually a bard. He never passed his exams. And I love the idea of bard exams. But he does have a magic harp that does two things. One, it plays on its own, or, or maybe it's better to say that it possesses Fluter Flam and has him expertly play whatever song the audience needs to hear. And that same song can sound different to each member of the audience as well. Now, this, of course, is a nice commentary on what literature is for, the, the, the role that stories play in our lives. And it's important that in this scene, the song that Taran hears is not about glorious heroes flashing swords, but about home. It's, it's about being back at Kaer Dalbin, taking care of a pig. And we realize, even as Taran himself does, that all the fighting is not for glory, but to put things right. All the fighting is to allow for a return to normalcy. That's the goal. 
The other magical property of the harp is that it will snap a string, or even several strings, whenever Fluterflam lies. And he lies a lot, mostly about his own heroism, his own martial virtues. And this makes him a comical character in the book. But it also underscores the idea that all those songs and poems and fantasy novels about awesome heroes being awesome in war are something of a lie. That's not what it's really like. And even the truest stories get it wrong. We should note, too, that Fluterflam is not unaware of his role in this story. The snapping harp strings are funny, but he knows about battles and kings because he used to be a king. He wasn't very good at it. He didn't like it. So he quit. And instead, he became a bard because if more of his valued song and stories above power and war, it would indeed be a merrier world. And in the end, he has a sharp view of all of this. And he tells Tarn that it isn't any good being sung about if you aren't around to hear it. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I do think it's also worth reminding ourselves that Lloyd Alexander was a soldier, that Lloyd Alexander served during the Second World War. In fact, he met his wife in that capacity, but that in the end, he went home again. Except for his time as a soldier, Alexander spent his entire life in Drexel Hill, a western suburb of Philadelphia, not actually that far from where I live now, though for me, this is the end point of decades of globetrotting and is still a thousand miles from home, a thousand miles from the place that uh, I would think of if I heard Fluterflam's song. So Alexander has a sharp view of heroism that is shaped by his own experiences amid the the global tragedies of the 20th century. But it's no good to tear something down without building something else up in return. And so much of the book is really about teaching Taran, and of course teaching young readers, maybe teaching all of us really, what it really means to be virtuous, what it really means to be a force for good in the world if it isn't being skilled with a sword. We've seen some of this already when Taran dreams of going home again. Home itself is something to be valued, but so is having a place in a family and a a place in a community. But more than that, Alexander advocates for kindness and mercy and charity. All through the book, other characters are working on Taran, or perhaps working as foils against his impulses toward martial virtues, towards poetic heroism. Dalbin, as we've seen already, is perhaps the bluntest of these characters, and he simply tells Taran that Taran doesn't know what he's talking about. But it's really Ailanwi, Gwydion, and Medwin who show Taran what Dalbin is talking about here. We didn't really talk about Medwin in the recap, and that's because he's most important here. Medwin is the Bjorn character in this story. He lives alone in his secret valley, and he cares for animals. He's a vegetarian, even as he himself is an impressive physical specimen who surely must require a lot of protein. Medwin teaches Taran that every living thing deserves our respect, and this includes the evil birds that serve Aran. The servants of Aaron weren't born that way. They weren't born evil. They were made that way through torture and other horrible treatment. And therefore, they deserve our pity. And of course, the real lesson here is that the way to combat evil is to not make it in the first place, right? To make a world that is full of kindness rather than one that is full of torments. Taran puts Medwin's lessons into practice immediately when they encounter one of Aaron's evil birds. Uh, these are called Gwythaints, by the way. They encounter a wounded Gwythaint, and Taran wants to heal and care for the bird, even though his companions all advocate killing it, because it's just going to fly off and betray them. But in the end, treating this bird with kindness and mercy breaks it of its evil conditioning, and the bird becomes a help to them. Alanwi is also constantly saying similar things to Taran, if a bit more brusquely. Taran is always saying and doing the wrong thing around her, and she lets him know about it. And here are just a few examples of how she alters his understanding of what it means to be a force for good in the world. She says, For an assistant pig keeper, I think you're quite remarkable. I even think you're the nicest person I've ever met in my life. And later she tells him that being kind is more important than being clever. 
She does also, though, model for him that using one's mind is a pretty good idea, and perhaps their central conflict, all of which has a Han Solo and Princess Leia vibe to it, their central conflict is that Tarrant just wants to do stuff without thinking much about it, while Alanwi wants to observe and question and plan. And here's probably my favorite exchange between them. This comes when they are trapped in the barrow just before they discover the, the sword. Uh, they're lost and trapped. And, and Tarin is impatient about it while Alanwe is being in the moment and is wondering about the barrow itself. And Tarin shouts at her, I wish you'd stop wondering about things that can't make any difference to us. Of course, in the end, it's Alanwe's curiosity that wins out, that saves the day. And you know that finding that sword is going to be the biggest event in the whole series, right? Well, let's talk about Gwydion now. Now, he combines a lot of the virtues that Medwin and Alanwe have. He talks to Tarn about pity. He teaches him to treat Gurgi well, even though Gurgi is uncouth and is just different. And he tells Tarin that the cauldron-born are victims to be pitied, that Aron has taken their lives and taken their memories from them. And he's taken their souls, basically. He also models patience and curiosity for Tarin. But his chief role is in telling Tarin that the thing he really has to do is decide. He has to choose for himself what it means to be a hero. He has to choose for himself what type of person he wants to be. And this is explicit in their very first meeting, and it's something he says again several times. We'll come back to this in a few moments. In the end, Tarin isn't really sure that he's accomplished anything, even though he was present for all of the heroic deeds on this adventure. He was there, but he doesn't know if he mattered. They've defeated the Horned King. They've rescued Henwen. Everything is back as it should be. But still, Tarin feels like he didn't do anything. And here's what he says to Dalbin. It was Gwydion who destroyed the Horned King, and Henwen who helped him do it. But Gurgi, not I, found her. Dolly and Fluter fought gloriously while I was wounded by a sword I had no right to draw. And Alanwi was the one who took the sword from the barrow in the first place. As for me, what I mostly did was make mistakes. And Dalbin agrees, but of course Dalbin also sees something that Tarin can't. Dalbin sees that Tarin was the heart of the group, that it was Tarin who kept them together through his sense of purpose and self-sacrifice, that ultimately being a hero is about serving others. And that's what Tarin has done. And this, of course, is what fantasy literature is for. It is to teach us about being a force for good in the world, about what that means and how we can do it, even when it is hard. Now, I know I'm running long in this episode, but before we move into our strengths and weaknesses segment, I do want to spend a little time talking about Alexander's source material. I mean, I hope you didn't think I was going to let an opportunity to talk about medieval literature go by. We possess a lot of medieval Welsh literature, but the main text that Alexander has drawn on to shape his fantasy version of Wales is the collection of stories known as the Mabinogion. This is a massive text. It's a collection of 11 stories that runs to just about 300 pages in most editions, most printed editions, I should say. And these stories are by a number of different authors writing at different times over a period of about 100 years, mostly during the 13th century, though the complete manuscripts that we have are actually from the 14th century. The Mabinogian proper tells stories about the mythological hero Pryderi. He's not necessarily the protagonist of these stories, but he's in all of them. And then attached to this are other stories from medieval Wales, including a number of King Arthur stories that are quite interesting to, to compare to the, the French and the Anglo-Norman traditions. You can get a copy of a translation of this quite easily. Oxford World Classics has a great one, and I, I definitely recommend it. When Alexander was writing the Chronicles of Prydain, there, there were two translations available, but we know that he was working from the translation done by Lady Charlotte Guest because she included in that volume much more than just the Mabinogian, and a lot of that material as well appears in the Chronicles of Prydain. So what I really want to do here is just look at how Alexander modifies his source material. 
there's a passage in one of the tales that Lady Charlotte Guest included in her Mabinogian volume that contains basically the entire kernel of the Book of Three. This comes from the Miverian Archaeology, which is another collection of medieval Welsh literature, but this is a collection that was only done around 1800. It's not itself a medieval collection like the Mabinogian is. Indeed, this collection is actually a really important part of the Welsh nationalist movement, which I mentioned here just briefly because we've talked about nationalism a number of times on ATOS. All right, so here's the passage I'm talking about. There are the Englands that were sung at the Battle of the Trees, or, as others call it, the Battle of Akron, which was an account of a white stag and a whelp. And they came from Anuvan, and Amathon, the son of Don, brought them. And therefore Amathon, the son of Don, and Aaron, king of Anuvan, fought. And there was a man in that battle who could not be defeated unless his name were known. And there was, on the other side, a woman called Akron, who likewise could not be defeated. And Gwydion, the son of Don, guessed the name of the man. And that's our plot in a nutshell, but you can see how Alexander has decided to invent his own protagonist and tell the story from an entirely different perspective. Two, he's dialed up the villainy, which we get hardly any of in this medieval passage, right? Everything is matter-of-fact in the medieval text. It's, it's dispassionate. But Alexander has made the bad guys proper bad guys, and he has raised the stakes a lot. There is one more bit of this that I want to talk about, but before we do that, I should say that if you are fascinated by Welsh mythology, well, you should be. It's awesome. And we've done some other work on the network with Welsh literature that you may want to check out. One of the giants of weird fiction was Welsh. Uh, that's Arthur Mackin. And we've done a number of his stories on Eldersign, and I would encourage you to, to check out those episodes if you, you haven't already. But all right, back to Perdane. I do also want to talk about Medwin, who is a crucial figure in the plot and, and crucial for the themes as well, but also for Alexander's playful relationship with the history of literature. Now, I've said already that he is basically Bjorn, and I've made some comments about other places where Alexander's story echoes or mirrors something from Tolkien. I think these moves are explicit. I think we are meant to understand that Alexander is thinking about how Tolkien has used English, Scandinavian, and also some Celtic literature of the Middle Ages to construct a fantasy world, and that Alexander is riffing on Tolkien, riffing on these works. Medwin is the most obvious example, and really, I think, the central figure in it. And maybe on the forum, we might have some fun doing some comparisons of language and images between the two scenes, between the Medwin scene and the Bjorn scene. But Medwin is also a storyteller. And this means that Alexander uses him in other ways to connect his story with the long tradition of fantastic literature. Specifically, Medwin tells two stories that aren't Welsh in origin, but come from the ancient Mediterranean. One is the story of Noah and the Ark, and there is a strong hint here that Medwin is, in fact, Noah, that his love of animals stretches far, far back, and that he is more than just some guy who cares for creatures. And I should say that, that Noah does appear in medieval Welsh literature as someone who sailed to Britain after the flood, but the story that Alexander has Medwin tell doesn't have any Welsh analog, at least not that I know of, though I would love to have one pointed out to me if you know one. And that is a story about a hero who has to accomplish a series of impossible tasks in order to marry the person he loves. He does it, of course, but he's only able to pull it off with the help of some ants. Now, this is a common folktale and fairy tale motif. You can think of Cinderella here. I mean, they're not ants, they're, they're mice there, right? But it amounts to the same thing. But this specific story comes from the Cupid and Psyche episode of the Metamorphoses by the Roman writer Apuleius. And I know this story well because I spent an undergraduate Latin class reading that story over and over again and being tested on it. And I love this move. I love literature that is cognizant of its place in the long history of storytelling. I love literature that self-consciously places itself in that continuum. Alexander has done this masterfully, and I just love it. I love this book. I mean, I really, really love this book, and I hope that that is abundantly clear. And so I think this is a good note on which to just move into talking about strengths and weaknesses. 
foremost, I think we have to keep in mind that this is a book aimed at kids. It's, it's aimed at third graders and fourth graders, and we should judge it by how well it works for them. And I think the verdict is awesomely. First, this story offers a number of great models for children. The emphasis on kindness rather than martial prowess, the, the, the emphasis on kindness rather than on winning is supremely important. It is a lesson I wish more of our children received. But there are also great lessons here about responsibility. The whole plot of the book hinges on Taran taking his responsibility as assistant pig keeper so seriously that he comes up against agents from hell. But there is also a great line near the end of the book when Taran owns up to his own mistakes. He says, I admit we are here through my fault. I should not have followed this path, but what's done is done. I led us here, and I'll find a way out. And what I love about this is that Taran's behavior models for kids how to fight an impulse that we all have to deny our mistakes, to shift the blame onto others rather than to own it and to find a solution. This is not just a model of morality, right? It's a model of competence. And that is hugely important to me. And and really, for all of us who want to live in a functioning society, right? Competence matters. Teaching children to be competent matters. There is also here a model of gender equality. Now, this matters perhaps way more in the 1960s when this was written, or at least was provocative in ways that it simply isn't now. But it really stands out that this is in some ways a book for boys about how girls can do stuff too. I mean, that's explicit in the text, and it's going to continue to be so as the series goes on. But it's more than just that girls can do stuff too. Alanwi teaches Taran a number of valuable lessons and is also indispensable to the story, all of which surprises Taran, who just assumed that this was a world for boys and men, not a world for girls and women, or really, we should say, not a world for everyone. And Alanwi is an awesome character. She is one of the best characters that we've had on ATOS so far, and she is surely one of the strengths of this book. She's clever and funny, but she's also direct and confident in ways that Taran simply isn't. Taran spends a lot of time in this book with his mouth metaphorically open, but Alanwi can just always figure things out in, in an instant. She can figure things out in the seconds between the lines. But getting back to this book, Working for Children, Alexander does a number of wonderful things with language. And this is something that has been on my mind a lot recently in my capacity as a university instructor. More and more of my incoming freshmen, and even some of my older students, just suffer from a lack of basic reading comprehension. And this stems from growing up in households with a default mode of video games or or, or TV, rather than a default mode of books. And I've been finding myself having to take steps to encourage students to develop some basic literacy skills. And one of those has been to have them fill out worksheets about books that we read for class. And this includes identifying some vocabulary words that are new to them. And just a few weeks ago, I had a student identify the word encumbrance as a word that he or she did not know. Now, my jaw dropped at this moment, right? Because this obviously means that this student never played D&D, which, it turns out, is where a lot of my vocabulary developed. But it also developed from fantasy stories in general, and this is something that Alexander excels at. These are books that are aimed at third graders, but there are a lot of words here that I think some of my students, some of my adult students, would find unfamiliar. But it's not just vocabulary. Alexander also introduces the idea that language itself is fun, that language is interesting. For one, the names are Welsh, which means they have spellings that strike Americans as absurd, and it's a struggle to pronounce some of them, and I think that's great training. But there is also the scene with the sword and the barrow in which we learn about translating for sense rather than translating for literal meaning, and that's a really advanced concept. And then there is Gurgi, who plays with grammar as a matter of course. He uses these rhymed pairs of active participles as nouns. 
Crunchings and munchings means food in his language, and this gets kids to think about the flexibility of language. It gets kids to think about different ways of expressing the same idea with different words and with different grammar. It also gets them thinking about sounds and rhymes and so on, and it's all packaged in a character who is fun and funny. This is magnificent work. I mean, just brilliant work. Alexander also just has some great prose descriptions that also emphasize paying attention to the world around us, and and especially to the natural world around us. He is always specific about the types of trees, for example. There are no generic trees in this world, and that's awesome. But let me give some examples of some of his great prose, and and then we can close the covers on this book and and maybe go read the next one. Here's Alanwi's description of the images that Fluter's song conjured for her, and I want you to pay attention to the sounds here. The waves break against the cliffs and churn into foam, and farther out, as far as you can see, there are the white crests, the white horses of Lear, they call them. But they're really only waves, waiting their turn to roll in. I'm not sure I did the best job of reading that, but I hope you heard the alliteration. We start with C's, and then move to F's, and then to W's, and it's awesome. But think, too, about what Alanwi is saying about language, about metaphor here. She explains to readers, to kids, right, how metaphors work. We call it white horses of Lear, but really, they are waves. And finally, look at the verbs here. They're awesome. Break, churn, and roll. These are excellent. All of them describe different actions these waves take. This one sentence does so much with language at a crucial moment of language acquisition and a crucial moment of reading comprehension, right? For kids. And you cannot go wrong with this. All right, I think I'll end there. I had another passage I really like, but I think we can save that for the forums, perhaps, because I'm, I'm exhausting myself here with my own excitement, my own love for this book. And so that is going to bring my review to a close before my voice goes entirely. I do hope you'll visit the ASOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about all the things I didn't get to. And there's a lot of it. And maybe we can even just have a broader conversation about children's literature, what it's for, how it works, and what we should be having our kids read. Certainly, I'm going to be in the market for suggestions. But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Next time, we're going to be reading The Man Who Folded Himself by David Gerald. David Gerald, of course, this is a name you might know. He wrote the classic Star Trek episode, The Trouble with Tribbles, and he's won both the Hugo and the Nebula. But I've never read any of his books. I only know him as a Star Trek writer. So I'm excited for this one. But until then, until next time, and here I'm going to give our traditional sign-off, which is also from a children's book that is very much about what it means to be a hero and what war is like. Until then, until next time, I hope that you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. Thank you.